Hello, and welcome to The Taproot. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. This week, we are going to be talking about taking a break, but not for a week in the Rockies. We're talking about taking an extended break from science in order to raise a family. Our guest this week is Toby Kellogg, a world-renowned scientist with a distinguished career that almost didn't happen. We talk about how she stayed connected to her field. Spoiler alert, it involves publishing. And her perspective on balancing the demands of family responsibilities and careers. So with that, let's get to the conversation. So welcome to The Taproot, Toby Kellogg. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, We're glad to have you. Um, So just a brief biography. Toby did her PhD at Harvard and then afterwards a postdoc with R.A. Howard, who I guess was working at the Arnold Arboretum at Harvard at the time. Is that right, Toby? Uh, Yes, it's in the Harvard Herbaria. The the institutional structure is a little complex, but yeah. Now we're going to skip over a couple of years between her postdoc and her when, when I met Toby, actually, was when she was um, the E. Desmond Lee and Family Professor of Botanical Studies at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, where she was until 2013. And then in 2014, she moved to the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, where she currently resides. So today's paper is called Intraspecific and Interspecific Variation in 5S RNA Genes Are Decoupled in Diploid Wheat Relatives. This is a paper uh, published in Genetics in 1995. So, Toby, can you give us a quick sort of summary of the science that's in this paper? So it might be helpful to start with what we expected going into this. Uh, The 5S RNA genes are encoded in a separate array in plants that if they're not part of the major ribosomal array, uh, but they are indeed in thousands of copies similar to the rest of the ribosomal RNA. And the 5S RNA gene product is part of the large subunit of the ribosome. It seems to be essential wherever it turns up and uh, it's in all kingdoms, very highly conserved. The array structure is that you have a string of genes separated by spacers. So it just goes gene spacer, gene spacer for thousands of times. And the expectation given the conservation of that gene is that you would find very little variation within the gene and a lot in the spacer because it's not coded. Right. And this is not what we found. What we discovered was that within an individual plant and therefore within an individual array, that there was in fact as much variation in the genes as there was in the spacer. And this is completely counterintuitive because of the pattern between species and even across kingdoms. That is, the genes seem to be accumulating mutations within a plant and then somehow most of those are not fixed. So that once you compare between species, the gene does not display very many fixed mutations. uh, So that you end up with less variation in the gene between species than you have within an individual plant. The explanation that we came up with at the time was that in fact, the, the plant can tolerate 
a, an enormous number of mutated and presumably non-functional genes in the 5S array. And the, there must be then some sort of threshold effect where when they accumulate up to a certain level, then there's a phenotypic effect when the plant dies. So effectively that the variation in the genes is cleaned out sort of wholesale across the array. The other surprising bit is that in the literature at the time, well, I'm still in the literature, is the expectation that tandemly repeated genes should correct each other so that within an array, everything should be pretty much the same. And clearly our data don't support that hypothesis. And this, so this was very surprising at the time, was that this was not what you thought was going to happen when you went into the, the analysis? Yeah, that's correct. That's not at all what I expected. I feel like it's surprising now. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. Did you start doing this because people were already using 5S RNA genes as sort of the underlying structure for gene-based phylogenies? Is that why you were, were looking at this? Yeah, the original impetus was, was phylogenetic. So it's at the time, there was a dearth of phylogenetic markers, particularly for plants. What constitutes a good gene for creating a genetic phylogeny? So you need something that mutates fast enough, but not too fast. So you have to be able to align it. You have to be able to make inferences of homology across positions in the alignment so that you have to be quite confident that any mutation represents a real mutation and not just some sort of an art alignment artifact. Right. Um, but if you have things that are not variable enough, then you have no signals that anything ever happened. It's, it's a Goldilocks and the three bears kind right. of thing. Right. Exactly. But so this paper makes me think that 35S, sorry, that 5S RNA maybe isn't the best. Uh, no. It worked sort of um, the same thing with the spacers of the other ribosomal RNA array. Um, and we've used those uh, people, for instance, use the internal transcribed spacer uh, between the 18S and 26S ribosomal RNA frequently. And in all cases, these things are quite variable and you have to sequence really very deeply to estimate the amount of variation within an array, within a plant, within a species, and then to go beyond that to estimate variation between species. So they're a real pain to work with. Um, they're, they're not an ideal phylogenetic marker. However, when people were relying heavily on PCR, they were something that you could get readily. So can you tell us a little bit about how did this paper come about and, and you and Rudy Appels, who did all the work on this paper? Yes, Rudy had done a lot of work in his lab already. So it's something I was interested in uh, pretty early in my career. And I managed to get a grant from the NSF to look at and hopefully disentangle the evolution of the wheat tribe. And one obvious place to start was to build on the data that Rudy had already collected. So as part of that grant, uh, I wrote in the funds for me to go to Australia to work in Rudy's lab for several months to add to his set of data and hopefully solve the phylogenetic problem. You, you mentioned that NSF grant. It came at a time where you had moved 
between multiple different positions at Harvard. What was your position when you got the grant to do this, this research? So depending on how I frame it, you could say I was unemployed. You could say I was an associate of the Arnold Arboretum. I was a research associate in the Department of Evolutionary Biology, Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. Neither of those positions conferred any salary, but it gave me an address. Yeah, an email address. <laughs> yeah, it gave me an email address and a, a mailbox. The catch in all these positions was that I also did not have a principal investigator status. So to receive an NSF grant in general, you have to be associated with an institution that agrees to administer that grant. And it turns out, if you do not have a formal faculty appointment, that is extremely difficult. Uh, most places are not willing to administer grants for somebody who's not on their staff, and Harvard certainly was not willing to do that. I went through a variety of attempts to figure out how to get principal investigator status and how to work with other institutions. But the one that finally succeeded came out of a conversation with a friend of mine, Colleen Cavanaugh, who's still on the faculty in organismic and evolutionary biology there. And I was outlining what the problem was, and she, perhaps not knowing that I would take, would take her seriously, she said, well, don't worry about it, just put my name on it. And I thought, well, all right, let's try that. So that the grant was written as, with Colleen as the principal investigator and me as the postdoc under her. The catch on this is that Colleen is a marine biologist. And, and you did not list wheat as a aquatic organism for the purposes of the grant? Uh, no. So in the, I, I talked to the program officer at NSF who I knew personally anyway, and so he knew what the situation was, that I didn't actually have a formal appointment. And in the very beginning of the grant proposal, we just said, this proposal is written entirely by Elizabeth Kellogg and Colleen Cavanaugh's name is on it purely for institutional purposes. A few of the reviewers were still a little confused, but we got the grant. And that allowed me to basically set up shop in Colleen's lab paying my own salary, and that also then funded the visit to Rudy's lab at CSIRO. Somewhat after that, then, I applied for a conventional professor position and was hired. The only wrinkle in that was, by that point, I had been out of the workforce for long enough. They decided that I could not be hired at the assistant level, so I was hired at the associate level. So I skipped being an assistant professor. Yeah, that sounds like a good wrinkle. But what I really want to ask is how you found yourself in a position where you were capable of writing a grant and getting an, a grant, but yet you had no formal position. How did you find yourself in that place? So I did my PhD at Harvard, and then I also did a three-year postdoc, as you noted, uh, with Dick Howard working on the flora of the Lesser Antilles. So this was a herbarium-based postdoc. The postdoc ended because I had a baby and wanted to take some time off to be home taking care of my son. And 
at the time I was thinking about sort of six months to a year perhaps. And the, the goal had been to find a part-time job, uh, possibly in the Harvard Herbarium, which would be the very obvious place, uh, so that I could go back to work and continue doing some sort of research after, as, as my son got older. I learned a couple of things in that period of time. One is that it's perfectly possible to publish things, even when you are taking care of children, which I think every woman who, every mother who works outside the home has, has figured out. But also that the academic career path is not very flexible. The challenge was that there really weren't any part-time opportunities. And so that forced me over the course of a year or two to start looking then for more full-time options. And although I looked at, I think, pretty much every school I could think of in the Boston area, and there are quite a lot of them, nothing actually worked out. I did some part-time teaching, but adjunct professorships then are no better career tracks than they are now. That is, they're, they're pretty much a dead end. You're paid for the teaching and that's it. So I spent six years effectively out of the academic workforce, but I was still publishing. There are so many things about this story that are remarkable to me. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the most remarkable parts is that you, you didn't give up. You just, you were, you kept publishing on your own. You kept trying to find a solution to the problem. Were you getting encouragement from, from outside or was this just like, I love my research. I can't imagine doing anything else. Like what, what was your attitude about continuing to, for six years? Well, I should start out by saying that the, the line between being heroic and being stupid is very thin. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the other thing is, it's not as though I felt confident the whole time. In fact, I didn't. And there were plenty of times that I thought about what alternative careers, what alternative directions I might go. The counterweight to that were, was encouragement and support from an enormous number of people in, in many, many diverse ways. For instance, one of the things that I clearly had to do very early on in this period of time was learn more about techniques in molecular systematics and molecular biology, because I had not learned any of that in either my PhD or my postdoc. Yeah, you don't see very many herbariums with PCR machines in them, or at least at the time, I'm sure you did. At the time, you certainly didn't. You do now, but, <laughs> but it, it was a long time. So one of my colleagues then at Harvard was Jim Birchler, who very kindly let me come and simply hang out in his lab and watch his technician and then try different things myself and gradually train myself. Fred Alcibel did the same thing for me a couple years later, he simply allowed me to be around and be part of the lab. And then there were colleagues who provided encouragement. Uh, there was one particularly low point, and believe me, there were some serious low points in this, where 
I thought, okay, forget it. What else do I want to do? Maybe I should go to law school or something. And I mentioned this possibly in an email or a letter to a colleague, Lucinda McDade, who's uh, now director of research at Rancho Santa Ana Botanical Garden. And she wrote back and said, look, if you really want to go to law school, fine. But honestly, you have something to offer in science and don't completely let go of that. And that letter got me through, you know, a particularly bad spot. So, and of course I've mentioned Colleen's help in even getting this grant proposal, which was the thing that finally, I think really changed the equation. So it's a lot of very helpful people. One question I have is these days, publishing papers is, is, has a cost associated with it. Was that mm -hmm. just, you didn't have that back then? Uh, well, in the first place, it was a lot cheaper. Um, so even if you paid paid charges, it, it was, you know, it was a few hundred dollars. It wasn't thousands. Uh, and certainly I put some of my own money into research, not a huge amounts, but yeah, I mean, it was, if I had to pay page charges, then I paid them. Or I wrote to the journal and said, this research is unfunded. I know publishing isn't free. And so I'd send them a hundred dollars and say, look, this is what I can contribute to the page charges. At the time that worked. Certainly, I think if I were trying this now where publishing a paper costs two to $3,000, then obviously the equation would change. I, I think the, the solution now would probably just be to publish fewer papers or try to write fewer, longer papers. Or put them on bioarchive. Or put them on bioarchive or something. Do you have ideas of, I mean, I don't think that things are different now. No. There's still really no way for women to, or men, to take a leave of absence from the, the career path that's set out before you in academia to have a family or even to, you know, take care of an, an ill family member or whatever, and then get back in the game in any real meaningful way. How do you think we can fix that? Like, what's the solution there? If I'd taken six years and done nothing apropos publishing or going to meetings, I think the story would be completely different. I, well, I don't think there would be any hope of getting back in. But should it be that way? I mean, shouldn't it be shouldn't it be okay to step away for three years and then come back to a career you've trained for for ten years or like? It just <laughs> yes. seems kind of crazy. I also think it's interesting how we, I mean, like right now there's this huge upsurge in sort of people working online for themselves. They build their own business. They, mm -hmm. you know, develop e-courses or whatever. And like, that's completely tolerated. Everybody thinks that's an amazing and fantastic direction to go to be an online entrepreneur. But for some reason, when we talk about science, like we just can't even fathom that somebody could do it in the absence of this, of a, of a formal association with a university. Or a company. Or a company, right, of course, sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's particularly, I think the problem is particularly acute in academic science. I mean, I think we've, we're viewing the kind of research that goes on in a university as research that can only go on in a university. Right. Which certainly, at some level, it makes sense because there's a set of resources you just need to do a lot of it. 
That is, if you were doing molecular biology, there's just a bunch of physical stuff you need, equipment and machines that you need access to and reagents that cost money. So I think certain sorts of biology become very difficult outside of an institutional setting. I mean, I think it's certainly more possible now to take a year mm -hmm. and get back in, especially as Toby said, if you can keep publishing. And these days, the length of time it takes to publish, you probably can write up a paper in that year off. But I think if you're talking about can somebody take three years off completely and then get back in the game, it, I agree. I think that's, that's still very difficult, especially if they're trying to move up a level in the career track. Yeah, I think that's a good point, is that if you're trying to move up, then you're, there's obviously a set of people with whom you're competing. And you're having to keep your record at some level that's comparable to everybody else who's out there. And one reason, for instance, I was competitive when I finally did apply for that particular position at Harvard was that I had been out at, past my PhD and postdoc for long enough. I just had a lot more publications than most of the other people who were applying. And that, that was just a matter of time. That wasn't anything particularly brilliant or not brilliant. Um, that's a problem even if you're in academia. You know, if, if you're, for instance, spending a huge amount of time on institutional activities or administration or teaching, and then you want to go into a more research-heavy track, um, you know, you still have to have the, the track record that's going to let you do that. Well, so how do you mentor people in your lab? Or what would you say to a young person today who is contemplating a break or is in the middle of a break or is trying to come back from a break? Like, what would your advice be? That's a really good question. And um, obviously, that's one of the things that started this conversation in the first place was that uh, one of the people in my lab had spent a year uh, with a with small children and was wondering how to handle that on her resume. And certainly my own experience um, has suggested that perhaps it's not a great idea to say that you took time off or that you spent time out for childcare or being a homemaker or caring for a relative, whatever. I'd like to think that the world had changed enough so that you could just put down in your resume two years spent as for family reasons. But I suspect that's still not a great idea in all circles. I mean, I think that something you said very early, Toby, in this conversation was that you discovered there isn't a lot of opportunity for part-time work in science. That is true. And I think that's still true. It becomes more true the higher you go in the ranks. So it's mm -hmm. it's very easy to have part-time technicians. Grad students they sometimes they are effectively <laughs> yeah, part-time. Part <laughs> right. But and postdocs in theory could be part-time, but it's not done. Yeah. And I don't know why it's not done. I don't either because I you'd think that would work 
but I, I'd never seen it done. If someone is asking me what they should do, I guess that would be probably my advice is that mm-hmm. instead of taking two years, you know, a year completely off, go to half time for two years, mm-hmm. but keep your hand in the game. Because I think one of the great things about science is it's constantly evolving. And if you really have stepped away for two to three to four years, there is going to be time. It's going to take you time to catch up Yes. on what's happening because the fields will have evolved and the projects will have changed. Yeah. The other tricky thing is the grants, right? There's no grant. There's no mechanism as far as I know for just putting your grant on hold while your postdoc takes two years off and then comes back to the same project, right? I think there are such mechanisms for the PI. Well, you can, no, you can delay the end date of a grant. So you could say my postdoc took a year off and, you know, therefore you want a no-cost extension. Right. That could be a justification for a no-cost extension. That's yeah. true. And you can do no-cost extensions twice. Right. In fact, you can do them longer than that. You just need more and more permission the the more elaborate it gets. But I I would think that certainly, depending on the granting agency, certainly NSF has been very vocal about wanting to support more family-friendly policies. And so if you went to your program officer and said, you know, this was a three-year grant, but my postdoc would like, just had a child and would like to take, go to half time, which will slow us down, but I would like to accommodate that, um, you know, can you, can you, you know, at least verbally say that you're okay with that idea so that when it comes time to approve my no cost extension, mm-hmm. you could do that. I agree. I think that would work. I think you're right. And I think there are new grants. I can look this up um, for specifically for women returning mm-hmm. uh, to postdocs after having been out for to have a family. I don't think that it specifically has to be to have a family, but I think mm-hmm. there, I forget what they're called, but there are like getting back in the game grants for postdocs. I mean, I think there just has to be more of that flexibility, but the, the flip side of that is as a, a PI, I depend on the postdoc, of course, for my own publication. And so there has to be some sort of accommodation there as well. That is, I can't be sort of going along thinking, right, we're working on some major paper and now we're just going to put this whole research program on hold for two years. And obviously the only way you sort that out is in the context of an individual project and an individual person. I don't think there's a universal rule that it can or can't be done, but their interest from a couple of people involved, not just the person wanting to take the time off. Right. There's so many different layers and lenses to look at it from, from everybody's perspective is different. Yeah. But I think, I mean, getting back to your question about what do I tell my postdocs, I'm afraid I'm absolutely insistent about publications. And I guess that's just the, the result of that six year period in my life where the, the publications were everything. You know, if you can say, well, yeah, I'm getting the papers out, then, then that becomes the, the bottom line. All right. Well, Toby, this was a great conversation, and we really appreciate you coming on. 
Where can uh, people find you if they want to get in touch? So my lab website is kelloggelab.weebly.com. Uh, and the lab is also on Twitter. And Liz, uh, where can, can we reach you? You can find me on Twitter at at E Haswell. And you can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can find the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And with that, Toby, thank you again. This was great. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Uh, Toby, thank you for sharing this really personal story. We appreciate it. Brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.